You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Please find Romans chapter 3 in your Bibles. Uh, Today we're in Romans 3, 1 through 8 which tells us that everyone is under the just penalty of sin. So if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, Their condemnation is just. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, comfort us, challenge us, change us. We pray for your will to be done, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Romans tells us the good news of Jesus Christ, powerful to transform hearts and lives, to be unashamed of the gospel, uncondemned by sin, unconformed to the world. We see in Romans the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, received through faith in Christ. But... The first part of the good news is bad news. Man is sinful and condemned. Uh, Let God be true. Uh, The truth is all people are under the just penalty of sin. This is what Romans 3, 1 through 8 tells us. And we have been hearing this continually from chapter 1, verse 18. uh, to, And we're going to keep hearing it all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Because... God is leading us somewhere in this line of reasoning. Walter Luthi wrote this, Like a herdsman carefully and skillfully driving his unruly sheep and cattle and horses toward the narrow door of the stable, Paul has led us up to the narrow door of heaven. The Spirit has been uh, painting us into a corner of sinfully depraved helplessness, Shreds every ounce of self-determination, 
uh, closes off every escape route, cuts away every last bit of pride in works, and preps us uh, for brilliant gospel beauty that starts in chapter 3, verse 21. It's like a brilliant diamond on black velvet, the gospel set against the backdrop of sin. S. Lewis Johnson wrote, How happy the person who has had God's light fall on the darkness of their sin. They are as blessed as a person whose doctor has been able to diagnose their illness. Romans 1 uh, told us mankind uh, suppresses the truth, holds it down unrighteously, denies God, fights against him, and so God's wrath is revealed against sin, literally being experienced now, that wrath even now, and one day in its fullest extent, God gives people over to the evil they want now, and they will experience even more of his wrath then. Romans 2 tells us the ground is level. Irreligious pagans and religious folks are equally guilty before a holy God. Everyone is under the just condemnation of God due to sin. And God's judgment is coming, and he doesn't play favorites. And we saw last week that Paul laid out his case in uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 29, that religious people need the gospel. He dismantles Judaism and false righteousness in one fell swoop, and he basically says all your religiosity cannot save you. Your works, your heritage, your ceremonies do not save. Covenantal position, privileges, practices cannot save. Only Jesus saves. It's, it reminds me of, of those great big signs that were uh, down in Los Angeles uh, that were on top of the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Only Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We saw that re regeneration is necessary, that without it everything falls like a tent without poles, that the Spirit must change your heart, and there must be evidence in your life. No, no regeneration, no life. And repentance is necessary, that you have to admit you're going the wrong way, and you need to trade false religiosity for true righteousness by grace through faith in Christ alone. God is going to judge everyone through Christ, and he will uphold his honor and work through changed hearts. Now we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, tells us everyone is under the just penalty of sin. And Paul knew something. He knew that what he had said in chapter 2 was going to provoke Romans from a Jewish background. And so he's anticipating and answering every anticipated objection. And he's doing it quickly. He's, he's got like ninja-like quick reflexes. And he is a kind evangelist. He is very kind. He puts himself in his listener's shoes and he respects them enough to, to think hard about how they will respond. This is very similar to how he approached things in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And here what he's doing is he's basically having a Q&A session with an imaginary reader. And so it's like a question, then an answer. A question, then an answer all the way through these eight verses. Verse 1 begins the questioning. And the question would go like this, Paul, are you saying that there is no advantage to being a Jew? Is there no advantage to biblical religion? Verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? 
What is the value of circumcision? And circumcision here stands for all of Judaism. All of it. Basically, the question, is it useless to be a Jew? Answer, verse 2, no, I'm not saying that. There is great value in being a Jew because you have and you know the word of God. Look at verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So most importantly, they were given God's word. They had the word of God. And, and this word, it literally means a supernatural word from God. And he's signifying the entire Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 and 2, you read these words. O Israel... Listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you. Do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. They knew they had the word of God. It's like what Jesus said in John 5.39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. And so there's this great advantage in having the Old Testament, and the reason why, first, is it, it contained the truth about salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul said to Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, literally the Old Testament, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So it contained the truth about salvation, and it also contained the gospel. Galatians 3, verse 8 tells us that the scripture, the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so when Paul said, 2 Timothy 4, 2, when he said to Timothy, preach the word, he was referring to the oracles of God, uh, 1 Peter 4.11, in Scripture. So the word of God is the greatest blessing, and God himself spoke to the Jews in the Old Testament, which is an enormous privilege. In fact, Deuteronomy 4.8 says this, What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? In Psalm 147, the psalmist says, He revealed his word to Jacob. His laws and decrees to Israel. He did this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. And then the psalmist says, praise God. Praise the Lord. This is good. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, every word of God is flawless. You wonder if the word of God is perfect? It's flawless. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. God the Son was saying to God the Father, our word is truth. Another question in verse 3. So here's the next question that he's anticipating. Okay, all right. You can have that. But those words have failed. Didn't they? I mean, so many people haven't believed the gospel revealed when God sent Jesus. So what happened to the promises? Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Literally, it means what if they didn't believe? What if they were out without faith? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? 
So here you have their lack of faith versus God's faithfulness. And the question comes, does it nullify God's faithfulness? Does it make it to no effect? That word literally means to make it void, to destroy, to bring to nothing, to cause it to fail, to cause it to vanish, literally to abolish, to cease it. So is God's faithfulness gone because of sin? This is the question he's anticipating. Uh, Jewish readers disagreeing with his statements, and they would argue that, hey, Paul, your teaching nullifies the promises God made to the Jews in the Old Testament. Now, here's what the Old Testament clearly taught. That before any Jew, regardless of lineage, could inherit the promises, he must come to repentance and faith. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 spells this out, as many other passages do. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion and abundantly pardon. God is going to fulfill all the promises he made to the nation, land and people and blessing, even if individual Jews are not able to receive them because of their unbelief. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. Professing believers cling to that truth. I mean, you might be clinging to this truth today. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might be clinging to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. I see some of you like mouthing those words right now because we trust those words because God is faithful to his word. And so, so the, the question about, well, you know, does, does, does God's faithfulness now get X out because, because we were unfaithful? Here's the answer, verse 4. Paul basically says, look, despite his people's failure to believe, God promises to save everyone who does believe. That our faithlessness only reveals how committed God is to his truth. Consider the lengths that God goes to to be faithful to his promises. And so verse 4, he says, by no means, like, no way, no, no way, no how. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So now we're talking about God's truthfulness. Let God be true. That's not wishful thinking. What, that, what this means is God is true, and may he be found to be true by his creatures. May we agree that he is true. And everyone a liar. That if mankind were to agree that God had been unfaithful to his promises, it would only prove that we are all liars and God is true. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 speaks of God who never lies. And it isn't just Cretans that are liars. Verse 4, it, it is written, and now he's quoting from Psalm 51, verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. 
Paul is quoting Psalm 51, verse 4, which says, Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's quoting the words of David. This is part of David's acknowledgement to God that God was perfectly justified in judging him for his sin with Bathsheba. That he would be justified, that as God's justice is put on trial, he's found righteous, that he prevails, that he will overcome, that God wins the case every day. He's proved right. He's blameless when he comes in judgment. Paul is anticipating objections. He's anticipating the objection that sin even nullified the very holiness and purity of God's character. Look at verse 5. There's another question. And really what it's saying is, if unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, how is he fair to judge us? By the way, this is probably the, one of the toughest passages in Romans. It, it's like a puzzle. In fact, when I came in this morning, I got a bulletin, uh, a kid's bulletin and, and, a, and a, uh, an adult bulletin, I guess. The regular bulletin and the kid's bulletin. You've seen this before? In there, this is awesome. You got the Bible verses I'm preaching on. You've got a maze, okay? And you got a word search. This passage is like a maze, okay? It's like a maze. You gotta go, woof. But if you just see it as, it, as this Q&A, I think, I think you'll, you'll see where it's going. Verse five, if unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, how is he fair in judging us? Verse five, if our unrighteousness serves to show or demonstrate the righteousness of God, this is like a jeweler displaying a diamond on black velvet to show the stone's true beauty. What shall we say? God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And you see the parenthesis there, I speak in a human way. Like, only unregenerate people think this way. I'm talking about God's righteousness. We first met God's righteousness in Romans in verse uh, 17 of chapter 1. The righteousness of God being revealed, which uh, expresses his saving activity and putting sinners into right relationship with him through faith. But God's righteousness also refers to his, his personal holiness, his personal righteousness, that he is always in the state of being right. Like, like we are sometimes right. We always think we're right, but we're all, a lot of times we're wrong. God is always right. And what this shows is the fact that there's the righteousness of God, that there is a standard of measurement. And there is no standard above God. And that God is his own standard of measurement, right? That God's righteousness is him always acting according to his nature. He is 100% consistent. You know, we're so inconsistent, are we not? But he is so consistent. And so the idea here is that human sin can never cancel God's faithfulness to his own standard of behavior. So Israel's sin showed God's righteousness in judgment. And, and he's going to inflict wrath. He's going to be right in taking vengeance, literally to bring anger to bear, that he is going to visit with wrath, and there's a wrath to come, and it's the well-understood result of unrighteousness. And what Paul is doing is he's paraphrasing like weak unbiblical logic of opponents to the gospel, which is the product of unregenerate hearts. In fact, 
he says on, onward in Romans 6.19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. We move on into verse 6. He answers, look, the fact that if you say God would not judge, that's bad reasoning. We all agree that God should judge us. Look at verse 6. By no means. Every time he says by no means, it's like, no way. Like you're having a debate with someone, and you're like, no, you're wrong. Well, here it's, Paul's 100% right in saying, no, you're wrong. By no means, because then how could God judge the world? So now we're looking at God's holiness in judgment. It's a major theme of scripture. We, do we not like to flip through our Bibles and find all the comforting passages of scripture? Are we not guilty of looking for all the good things that make us feel good? And we don't want to talk about the judgment part, but it's a major theme of scripture. It refers to the great day of judgment. If God condoned sin, as some would say, he would have no fair or righteous basis for judgment. Genesis 18.25, and this might be alluding to something like this. Abraham is pleading with God to spare the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's what, here's what Abraham says. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will always do right. And then another question in verse 7. And, and, and on into the first part of uh, verse 8. So the questioner comes back. Okay, okay. All right, hold on. If me sinning makes God look better, shouldn't I just sin more and more? So that his glory would be more fully seen? That's what verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? I should just be sinning all day long. And then into verse 8, why not do evil that good may come? The key here is verse 7, but if through my lie, um, that's general for moral falsehood, that's un unfaithfulness to the claims of your own conscience and, and obviously to God. Um, and so Paul's answer, the second part of verse 8, it's like this, please, please. I've been accused of saying things like this before. Now you're coming back at me. There's no way that's true. Saying you're sinning so God will love you more, that's an attitude worthy of judgment. That's what he says in verse 8 at the end. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. They're going to get what they deserve. They're slanderously reporting this. It's tragic. Here's... Paul preaching the gospel with all his might, the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And it's being perverted by opponents who argue that it just gives you permission to sin, and not just permission to sin, but encouragement to sin. Their condemnation is just. He is pointing out how logically absurd their conclusion is that sin somehow enhances the glory of God and keeps them from judgment. That's inconsistent with the Bible. So Paul cuts their tree down with one stroke. And he gives an answer as short as the question is long. And he rejects the thought and those who hold it. And he's basically saying this. Look, evil is evil no matter what God may bring from it. Evil is evil no matter what God may bring from it. 
God is able to cause the wrath of man to praise him, but we ought not to pour out as much wrath as we can so that he gets more praise. Speaking of those who object to God's judgment on their sin, uh, John Calvin said, uh, speaking of this passage, their perverseness was on two accounts to be condemned. First, because they had these thoughts in their minds to begin with. And second, because they trampled on the gospel and dared to draw from the gospel message the idea that they were innocent. And Paul simply just says it this way, their condemnation is deserved. To think that they are excused from God's judgment and free to judge the Gentiles shows they overlook the justice of God. And it brings us back, really, to Romans 2.1. Look at Romans 2.1. Paul brings his argument right back to where he started. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And he's setting us up for chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, where we're going to see that all people are not only under the penalty of sin, but they're under the power of sin. So Paul has really dismantled Judaism and all self-righteousness in one fell swoop. And the key idea here being that all people are under the penalty of sin. And the awesome thing about it is that there are some deep and meaningful life applications right here in this passage of Scripture. You know, life application of the Bible is not brain surgery. It is heart surgery. You open up the Bible and you read it, and you say, so how does this apply to me? You're basically being asked a question. Am I willing to yield to God and obey, to, and obey him? I want to apply this to my life. Am I willing to yield to God and obey him? And I want to give you some, some ideas that come right out of this passage. And As I look at this passage, there's one idea that just, just jumps right out at me as I was studying this. And the first idea I want to give to you is that, that you need to acknowledge God for who he is. That you need to acknowledge him for who he is revealed in his word. This passage has a beautiful depiction of God's perfect character and attributes. While emphasizing God's justice in judgment, you see his faithfulness in verse 3, his truth in verse 4, his righteousness in verse 5, and his holiness in judging the world in verse 6. God is faithful to everything he has said, everything promising judgment and everything promising blessing. And if God judges Israel for sin, he is still faithful, true, and just. If he judges us for sin, he is faithful, true, and just. He is the faithful, true, righteous judge. But our hearts, that's another story. Our hearts are golden calf factories. We create gods in our own image. We, we imagine a God who always blesses and never judges. A God who always gives us what we want. A God who wouldn't say or do things that we don't think he should say or do. I have had the sad experience of sitting with professing believers who will say, right in, with the Bible right in front of them, say, I can't imagine a God who would do or say that. 
So we eerily create gods who think and look just like us. Deception is just splattered with idolatry and falsehood, and we've got to be very careful. Let me ask you a question. What, what encourages your heart when your soul is downcast or downtrodden or in the doldrums or de- depressed? What, what helps you most? We find ways to medicate to make ourselves feel better. Let me tell you what the Bible says. God, by his spirit, through his word, encourages our hearts by reminding us of his perfect character. You can get that encouragement right here in this passage that God has spoken. He has given his word. He is faithful. He is true. He is righteous. He is holy in judging the world. He is holy. He is good. He is right. He is true. He is loving. He is patient. He is kind. He is gracious. He is merciful. He knows everything. He is If you're a believer, he's with you always. He's all-powerful. So acknowledge God for who he is. That's the first thing I would take from this passage. Secondly, we see this in verse 4, you must live under God and his authoritative word. That no amount of human consensus can overturn God's truth. Imagine, even if everyone in the world voted at the same time, like, You know, we get up in the middle of the night and other people on the other side of the world are up and we all voting at the exact same time and the vote is, is God's word true or not? And imagine that even if everyone in the whole world voting at the same time voted that God's word isn't true, it's still true. It's the final authority for, for our lives. The final authority for a Christian is not a court of appeals, is not an international convocation, it's not public opinion, because the word of God is binding on our consciences. It's binding on us. We, the false conclusions of people about the word of God don't justify rejecting the Bible. It must be believed. But people are always going to want a gospel that will allow them to continue to sin. That we will always find a way around. Like, let me find an escape route to justify what I want to do. Instead of saying, God, what do you want? Your will be done. You look in your Bible and you want to find a gospel to tell you that you can continue in sin. That's bad news. So we are indicted by God for every false refuge that we cling to, whether we trust in our own name, whether we trust in our work, any false reasoning. You see all sorts of trust in things in this passage. What you need to do is give up all your excuses and arguments and submit to the word of God as your ultimate authority. We sin on an ongoing basis. And so we need the spirit of God uh, on an ongoing basis to apply the cleansing word to our hearts so that we will live in ongoing faith in Christ and repentance towards God. We will ultimately give an account of ourselves to God based on his holy word. So live under God and his authoritative word. Third idea from this passage. You need to admit that just being an outward Christian doesn't count, that it doesn't exist. 
The option doesn't exist. There's a lot of professing Christians that will try to persuade themselves that it would be unfair for God to be angry with them even if they will not repent. It's a very unbiblical thought. Professing Christians persuading themselves that it would be unfair of God to be angry with them even if they will not repent. Like, I'm just going to keep doing this, and as long as I don't get hit by a bolt of lightning, then I got the thumbs up. And Psalm 51, of all places, undermines all of that kind of false assurance. Look with me at Psalm 51. This is what is being quoted in this passage. Psalm 51 undermines a cheap, shallow, it's all right to sin because Jesus died for me idea of grace. Paul, um, Paul quotes Psalm 51, and it's David, and he's, he's broken. He's a broken man with a broken heart, with a contrite heart, with a repentant heart. And he starts out this way, God have mercy on me. That's how we should start. Wash me from my sin. Cleanse me. He's confessing. He says, I know my sins. It's right in front of me. I'm being reminded of it. He says, restore me. Wash me. Create in me a clean heart. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Deliver me. If you want to admit that being just an outward Christian doesn't count, that option doesn't exist, you've got to cling to the Christ of the Bible, to the Jesus revealed in the Bible. The one true God bids you to come and die to yourself and live to Christ, where your whole life is reoriented around the Lordship of Christ. Most haunting question I've been thinking about this week is, is this. Do I love Christianity more than Christ? Do I love all the trappings of Christianity and what it means to follow Christ more than I love Jesus Christ? We need to call others to faith in the Christ of the Bible, uh, not to a create your own God. Um, the God who made us uh, calls the shots. He, he, he draws up the plays. Uh, we need to meet people where they're at spiritually and preach the gospel to them. We want to live a life where what we're saying and what we're doing uh, both recommend God to them, both recommend Jesus to them, because God is sovereign and he is in control. He will be found true. He is truth. Um, everyone's under the penalty of sin. The gospel never changes. But we've got to admit that just being an outward Christian doesn't count. That option is not in the book. Number four, you need uh, to anticipate final judgment. You see where, where it talks about how God would judge the world in verse six? How could God judge the world? You need to anticipate final judgment by acknowledging Christ's lordship. That you need to examine your own heart, and we're coming to the table in, in a few moments. That's the great time to... Uh, you know, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, as the Bible puts it. That knowing you don't have any spiritual exemption from judgment unless you're in Christ, and, and spiritually you're under great accountability, and you're entrusted with the word of God, and, and, and you can be Jewish and lost and Gentile and lost. 
Uh, and you have to have a heart changed by the Spirit from God. So you need to examine yourself, but then also you should grieve for the self-deceived. Meet them where they're at again. Anticipate final judgment by acknowledging the Lordship of Christ because God will perfectly and fairly reject anyone who will not repent. I think of Matthew 11 where Jesus is pronouncing woes on the unrepentant cities and, and things were done in those cities where they should have said, wow, Jesus, you are God. We want to worship you. And he just says, woe to you because you didn't repent. See, Romans 3, 1 through 8 tells us everyone is under the just penalty of sin. Uh, we're going to get into the next passage soon where, you know, everyone's under the power of sin. But I want to mention one more thing that I really believe you need to get out of this. This is for the most, I know there are so many tender hearts at Grace Orange. I, I, I am very idealistic. I think everybody's got a tender heart. But God knows. Uh, but here, here it is right here. You need to allow God's assessment of you to rule. God's assessment of you to rule. Um, Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross, you know he paid your penalty at the cross, and he was buried, and he, was, uh, risen, he rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended to the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back with judgment for unbelievers and blessing for believers. And you're believing all of that, then you need to know that you're freed from the power and the penalty of sin. But you know you still sin, which creates a lot of... Uh, Deep frustration for the humbly repentant, doesn't it? Our sin can feel like it's defeating us. And, and there's this dark alley of human depravity uh, that we go through that can be feeling overwhelming. But new life in Christ cannot be taken away. So I, I want to point you to, to, to Matthew chapter 11, not to the woes, but to to the assurance for the tenderhearted that's found in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Look there with me for a moment. You probably know these verses by heart. It's where Jesus, right after he gives the woes on the unrepentant, I think he just wants to assure the tenderhearted. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So those that are, have grown weary and toiling, and they're loaded down and they're weighed down, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Find rest for your soul in Christ. In Christ, you need to realize that you can come to him with everything without judgment because your sins were judged on Christ, and he knows everything, so tell him everything and realize that in Christ, God sees you as totally righteous and beautiful. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let that drive you to see and savor Jesus Christ as your only refuge. And as I begin to close, I want to mention something to you, and, and, and you're going to say, whoa, whoa, we're going there? Yes, we're going back to circumcision. I want you to go back to circumcision. Look at verse 1. What's the value of circumcision? Why circumcision? What does it symbolize? And I need to talk about something that's hard to talk about. In circumcision, 
God had them cut off a very intimate part of their bodies to symbolize that if they broke the covenant, they'd be cut off from God. But Colossians 2.11 speaks of a circumcision done in Christ, and he's saying it to people who, who had not been physically circumcised, but their hearts had been. And, and Colossians 2.11 says, in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ. So Christ in his death on the cross was cut off, forsaken, uh, cut off from the Father. Uh, Isaiah 53 says cut off from the land of the living. He was truly circumcised. He bore the curse of covenant breakers. He suffered the curse that we deserved. But in Christ, your heart is circumcised. So what this means is when the Spirit works in your heart and brings about the heart change that a believer experiences, you are given the Son's circumcision. So your religious performance doesn't matter anymore. Your lack of religious performance doesn't matter anymore. The Spirit applies to you the righteous work of the Son. So the Father sees you as an object of praise, not condemnation. And that's why in Romans 2.29 it says there is praises not from man but from God. Uh, you don't need to praise yourself or live for the praise of other people anymore. Your Father in heaven sees you as wonderful and beautiful. I hope you can grasp that. If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Christ went to the cross on your behalf, in your place, causes you to praise him and love him. And come to him again and again with open hands and open hearts, acknowledging his lordship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for how good you are to us. And thank you, Lord, that you, the one true God, invites all believers to your banqueting table. That you see us as beautiful is hard for us to take. But we know it's true we know you have given us new life, and we thank you, we praise you, and thank you for the freedom we have. Thank you that you are true. We pray in Christ's name, amen.